0: in this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio.
1: Well, a lot of people, when they hear the word alchemy, tend to think of, at least in this day and age, coming from a sort of rationalist paradigm, tend to think of crazy alchemists in their laboratory trying to transmute lead into gold, you know, the typical charlatan or the naive precursor to chemistry. And now we have chemistry, which is so much more advanced and we know so much more and alchemy doesn't really matter anymore. But alchemy was always... Both a physical and a spiritual process, something that was happening externally in the alchemist's laboratory, but also reflected internally within their spiritual being, uh, within their consciousness. And when we talk, when I talk about creative alchemy, it's the same concept as an alchemist working in the laboratory and watching these various processes in matter unfold and transform and transmute, but instead you're working with your creative process and watching that transmute as you're also observing transmutations within the self, within your soul. And,
0: uh, Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, author, artist, and dare I say, alchemist, Marlena Seven-Brenner returns to Rebel Spirit Radio to discuss her latest book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, Imagination, Creativity, and the Great Work. Seven discusses how historical movements in art reflect the alchemical opus, the relation of chakras to alchemy, and why accessing our authentic creativity is how magic happens. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Marlena Seven Bremner is a self-taught oil painter, writer, and teacher who has spent more than 20 years exploring esoteric and spiritual traditions, including Hermeticism, Alchemy, Surrealism, Symbolism, Tarot, Psychology, Magic, Astrology, Shamanism, and Mythology. She developed her career as an artist in the Pacific Northwest and now spends her time painting and writing in the New Mexico desert. She is the author of Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. She joins me today to discuss her latest book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy. Seven, welcome back to Rebel Spirit Radio.
1: Thanks for having me, Nick. Glad to be back. Well, thank
0: you. Yeah, I really enjoyed our last conversation and I loved that previous book. I got to tell you, I think that I like the new one a little bit more. I think it's just the alchemy, the alchemical aspect really speaks to me in many ways. But I wanted to ask you, I thought that we could start with this. The two books seem to be very related. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak to that a little bit. You know, what is the relationship between the two books?
1: Well, originally, uh, I had envisioned them as one book, one massive book, probably, (laughs) But when I presented the idea to the publishers, they wanted me to break it up into two books. So I kind of pretty easily was able to see how that would happen with a focus in the first book on the hermetic tradition and sort of the history of hermeticism and connecting that with alchemy and giving some basic alchemical theory and then moving into a journey through the seven hermetic spheres, which align with the seven traditional planets of astrology. And um, the second book then becomes more about the alchemical magnum opus or great work. And because I broke it into two books, I was able to go a little deeper into some history in each book, which is just interesting to me and was fun to explore. So in the first book that related to the history of Hermeticism specifically, and then in the second book, kind of a journey through these different periods of art in the 19th and early 20th centuries as a sort of reflection of the alchemical process, and also to kind of, you know, lay an, a foundation for how artists in these different periods have conceptualized the occult, how they've used alchemy as metaphor and in actual practice and their art and in other ways, and then to move into the actual alchemical work from there. And and to be able to kind of reference art from those periods as examples of how people have experienced some of the different alchem- alchemical processes.
0: Yeah. Uh, I've got to say that the two books are a rich education in the Western esoteric tradition, and they're beautifully written and I think very accessible, but they are a nice compendium of Western esoteric thought. So if someone is looking for a background And something that is scholarly, but not, I don't know the word I want, I don't want to say scholastic, but you know, accessible. That that they're accessible. I think that the two books, you know, I would recommend them to anyone for that history. So you did a remarkable job. And I've read other books on alchemy, and I think that you address some things that other books don't. And I think that the making the connections with artwork really helps bring to life some of that alchemical process. So since we're talking about the alchemical process, and you had mentioned some of the the, the history of art, let's start with creative alchemy. And let me ask you, what is that? What is creative alchemy in this alchemical process?
1: Well, a lot of people, when they hear the word alchemy, tend to think of, at least in this day and age, coming from a sort of rationalist paradigm, tend to think of crazy alchemists in their laboratory trying to transmute lead into gold, You know, the typical charlatan or the naive precursor to chemistry. And now we have chemistry, which is so much more advanced and we know so much more and alchemy doesn't really matter anymore. But alchemy was always both a physical and a spiritual process, something that was happening Externally in the alchemist's laboratory, but also reflected internally within their spiritual being, uh, within their consciousness. And when we talk, when I talk about creative alchemy, it's the same concept as an alchemist working in the laboratory and watching these various processes in matter unfold and transform and transmute. But instead, you're working with your creative process and watching that transmute as you're also observing transmutations within the self, within your soul. And um, through that, facilitating a union or a unified understanding of the internal and the external world, or the above and the below, um, spirit and matter. So creative alchemy then becomes a way of engaging with physical reality that is um, transformative and creative and also very spiritual.
0: Now, you wrote at the end of the book, I, I want to go back to all of this, but you wrote at the end of the book that this new book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, and the previous one, were born of your own journey. So you have gone through this alchemical process yourself. And I was wondering if you might be willing to speak to that a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, say so from a young age, I was sort of preoccupied with the um, balance of the sun and the moon and I was very artistic as a child as well and often most of my drawings would involve nature and the sun and the moon would always be there and I wasn't really conscious of what this meant until much later in my life but I became interested in natural healing and pursued training in this healing modality called polarity therapy and I studied for about five years and practiced and learned uh, so much about the esoteric anatomy of the body the chakra system, the staff of Hermes within the body, the caduceus, and the interweaving serpents, of the Kundalini energy. Right. And that was sort of my first introduction to uh, Hermetic principles and to alchemy. And it just, you know, really spurred my curiosity in those areas. And so I, I went further with it um, beyond my clarity therapy training. And at the same time, I had lost touch with my creative side. I sort of, you know, written off artwork as a hobby, something that I just do on the side, not that important. But at this time in my life, it really came back to me and I wanted to improve my skills in art. I wanted to become a good painter. So I began to teach myself oil painting. And at the same time, I went through a very, very dark night of the soul and it lasted for several years. And Nothing seemed to really make sense anymore. I was sort of thrust into a state of chaos within myself. A lot of repressed trauma coming up that I was having to deal with and face for the first time in my life. A lot of anxiety and fear and panic attacks. And I didn't really know how to handle it, even though I'd been training in natural healing and had studied different forms of meditation and practiced yoga. All these things didn't really seem to help at this time in my life. But through my interest in alchemy, I was introduced to the ideas of Carl Jung. And so kind of psychological perspective on the alchemical art. And at the same time, teaching myself how to oil paint. So what happened was I began to see how I could project these inner contents that I was having such a difficult time with onto the canvas and allow myself to just, you know, kind of cathartically express what was going on within me, no matter how dark it was. And from there, you know, gain information about what was actually happening and how I could integrate it and heal from it. So that was really the birth of the whole process was the nigredo or the dark night of the soul, the beginning of the alchemical great work in my own life that lasted for a very long time. And the only thing that really seemed to pull me through it was, and from there, as my art developed and as I began to heal and integrate and, you know, integrate my shadow side and sort of transform from this, I would say, naive spiritual perspective that I held beforehand to a more integrated one that allowed for there to be darkness within me, you know, and to find the way to make that shadow side an ally rather than something that was working against me. From there, I began to see a much greater transformation begin to unfold. And this is what is considered the albedo or the whitening, the next phase in the process where the subjective and objective world for me became very, the lines between became very blurred and I felt a sense of transcendence and oneness with everything around me, almost to the point of megalomania, you know, where you kind of, you get in touch with that God essence within yourself and you begin to see not only like the symbolic, uh, meanings hidden in just mundane and everyday things and in conversations with people, but also getting a sense for how our own consciousness influences that. And so it was a very liminal time for me, but also a lot of inspiration flooding in. And this is when I began to explore um, surrealist techniques of automatism and mm. really just allowing the rational mind to be put to the side and the unconscious contents to flow out onto the canvas without any sort of filter or control and amazing things happened. I learned so much and you know as I would progress with the painting in that way I would begin to see defined figures or shapes or forms, faces and as they became more clear to me then I would go in and like refine them, bring out the detail and the realism and I worked with that for a number of years and I still include that practice in my creative
0: process. That sounds, not to interrupt, but that sounds a lot like what Jung did when he had his confrontation with the unconscious and created the Red Book, because, you know, the Red Book's got all those fantastic paintings that he did at that time. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, in Jung, in order to reconcile the conflict with these unconscious parts of ourselves, when they start to become conscious, uh, he recommended working with mandalas. And I think symmetry works the same way, at least for me, Um, Mm -hmm. symmetry plays a big part in my art. And so there's that process of automatism of like exploring what's in the unconscious and letting it come out and coming to know it. And then for me, there's the integration. And that tends to take the form of symmetry and these kind of harmonious shapes and patterns, sacred geometry, as a form of integrating those contents and bringing them to a state of wholeness. And then, you know, also being able to ascertain or distill the essence of a process that I've been going through and then share it with other people that might also be undergoing a similar process.
0: Right. Now, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask is that, you know, I love this idea of the personal transformation being mirrored in the art in that connection between art and the in the transformation of the self and i wanted to ask because this process this alchemical process it's not just for artists i don't think and i guess the question i wanted to ask you in that regard is or is everyone an artist Is going through that process, does that make everyone an artist of sense?
1: Personally, I think just being a human endows us with the power of creation, and we're all creative in different Mm -hmm. ways. We tend to think of artists in the typical sense of, you know, someone who's creating something, a visual piece of art, a piece of music, a poem, sculpture, but we're all being creative every single day. And there's infinite ways that this plays out, you know, from the way that we dress ourselves to the food that we cook to the activities that we engage in and the way that we interact with them and I think it's really just a matter of being conscious of that creative capacity and applying it in the way that makes sense for you whether that's with some sort of visual or musical art or if it's just in your business or raising your child whatever it is for you maybe it's in yeah. your garden you know yeah we all have something
0: yeah yeah yeah. When I, I was thinking back to when I was writing my dissertation, because that also seems to be that sort of alchemical process. Oh, yeah. And It is transformative. And I spent a lot of time in the dark night of the soul. <laughs> I just I'll just share this with you. I was before we spoke, I was eating some uh, yogurt and fruit and just kind of mindlessly looking at Facebook. And, you know, sometimes they pop up the memories that you want to share. Mm-hmm. And the memory was me posting that. I was starting to write my dissertation. This was like back in 2015. I'm like, I think I can do a page a day. So a year from now I'll be done. And my first thought was, oh my goodness, how naive I was.
1: (laughs) Yeah, a page a day is ambitious actually.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, I finally graduated I think in 2019. So it took a good three and a half years or so. And it was definitely a dark night of the soul. (laughs) I can tell you that. Um, but I I really like this idea of everyone, you know, our life is art in a sense. And it reminds me of, I think it was Neville Neville Goddard who talked about humans being created in the image of God. What that means is, you know, God is creator, that we are creators, which seems to be what you were just saying. And the other aspect to all of this, I think what, and what's, kind of key is the imagination. And you talk about the imagination, and you wrote that it's a divine faculty and the greatest gift of our human existence. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the imagination and the importance of the imagination in this work.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, artists, of course, understand the importance of the imagination. But it tends to have a sort of stigma of being unreal. You know, it's just your imagination. You're just imagining things. That's just a fantasy, you know. And it does have that aspect, the fantastical and kind of escapist aspect, you know, or what we think of as like magical thinking in a negative sense,
2: Hmm.
1: um, not being grounded, you know, in, in actual reality, in fact. And so with the Enlightenment, this kind of got really solidified as, you know, the subjective world, the imaginary world, dreams, all of that happening on the inner world is really not that significant. And what we're interested in is fact and the scientific method and um, what's objective and verifiable, you know, but this reclamation of the imagination I see is really pivotal um, because really like even scientific breakthroughs and innovations, they all kind of begin in the imaginal world, which is the term that I refer to in the book, The Imaginal World, Henry Corbin came up with that word to kind of counter our preconceptions of the word imaginary. Mm-hmm. So we can think of this as an actual place with real valid information that we all partake in all of the time. And the way that I like to think about imagination is it's a faculty that we can refine and develop and perfect both in a creative sense as artists or creators, but as also in the creation and transmutation of our own experience of reality. you know, And that's where Neville Goddard comes in with the imagination as a way to manifest things, manifest our desires and to change our experience. And so there's many different ways to think about the imagination, both in the generation of ideas, allowing that free flow of imaginative, you know, association and stuff to occur so that we can reach into that unconscious part of ourselves and make sense of it and turn it into something beautiful, but also to consciously engage with the imagination in a way that we are uh, facilitating real change in our lives. And, you know, in a sense, when we recite affirmations or something like that, that's one way of kind of infusing our imaginal world uh, with our intention. So,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like this idea of reclaiming our imaginations because I have, and I may have even said this to you in the previous interview. I don't recall. I apologize, but I know I've said it before on the podcast. Is that I have often felt like my imagination has been colonized, that it's not necessary. You know what what goes on is not necessarily mine, and I think that that's something that ha- that's very. It's instilled in us at a young age just because of the culture we live in. And if I understand correctly, part of this creative alchemical process is to deconstruct a lot of that. Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, and that actually comes into play in the first two stages of the, the great work, which is sort of one of the processes that I talk about in the greater chapter is putrefaction. Mm-hmm. So this a breakdown of our conditioned ideas and beliefs, yeah. and like you're saying, the colonization of the imagination. These things that have been sort of imposed on us by society, by our families and culture, and really breaking that down so that we can release anything that's sort of inhibiting our authentic creativity what really wants to come through us in our own unique way mm-hmm. and in the second phase of the opus uh, one of the processes I talk about is dissolution mm-hmm. and this is another way that we can kind of break down and purify these different limiting beliefs that we have so we could think of like a, a mental thought structure or a conditioned belief or core belief as like a cube a salt crystal right mm-hmm. and you throw that into water and it's going to dissolve and it's going to become one with the water so if we can kind of release these core beliefs that we hold that are like really solid and fixed into a greater body of awareness and kind of um, tap into something greater than ourselves and connect with that then we evaporate the water and we're left with a crystal again but it's in a more purified state so that's that integration of what we Uh, perceive in that sort of watery unconscious fluidity where we let go of these fixed concepts and then we integrate it again and come to a new understanding or wisdom the salt of wisdom right yeah
0: (laughs) yeah but isn't it scary because we have these ideas and you know these mental constructs that uh, you mentioned we're conditioned And, you know, you, 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 you wrote that, you know, all of this has to die. And that's kind of like this ego death. It's this death of this, of everything that you thought you were.
1: Oh, yeah. It can be terrifying. I mean, that's why it's called the dark night of the soul, right? That confrontation and also, you know, just letting go of something that has kind of defined us and the ego death can be absolutely terrifying and leave us feeling like a shell of ourselves, you know? of there's a great alchemical engraving i think it's in the book um of an alchemist like huddled in a sort of dry valley you know and Mm. his spirit and his soul have been separated from him and he's just you know got his arms crossed over his chest and huddled there in this sort of depraved state and that's very like emblematic of this stage of the process it can be really um intense and disheartening and i think what I want to bring light to and what I try to emphasize in the book is that if we can look at that part of, if we can look at that as just part of the process hmm. not only just part of it, but the beginning of it, right. it transforms it immediately. You know, yeah. Yeah. if we just put context for it and don't become so identified with that um, sense of loss and right. death and isolation, yeah. but seeing it as a necessary turning inward, that's going to, eventually transform, especially if we kind of can embrace it to a certain degree.
0: Yeah. Now, you may not have an answer, but I'm going to ask this question anyway. With the Negrito and this dark night of the soul, is this something that is just going to happen to an individual? Or is it something that we, because I don't know how many people would consciously say, yes, I'm going to go into the dark night of the soul now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's different for different people. You know, some people are just melancholic by nature, very Saturnian by nature. Hmm. Um, And so they may just have this kind of general Nicredo experience throughout their life. And maybe sometimes they come out of it and then they go back into it. Or, you know, with depression, people go in and out of it. But I think a lot of times it's catalyzed by a loss, a big change in our life, either the yeah. loss of one or someone important to us, loss of a job, divorce, you know, mm. these kind of big changes that happen where there's a little death that we kind of have to endure or an actual death right. um, that we have to grieve and um, process. So it really just depends. And, yeah. you know, for me, with my dark night of the soul, it sort of was a combination of both okay. because I sensed that there was something inside of me that needed to be broken open. And mm-hmm. so I was walking around with this mantra, like I need to be shattered, you know? right. which is crazy to me to think about, but I really was. Yeah. And so then I called in this experience, which I've talked about many times with EMT. It's the only time I've ever tried it. And I was basically... It was complete ego dissolution. I mm. was thrust into a completely different reality that was just cold and chaotic. And I had no sense of who I was, where I had come from. Mm. It was just the awareness of this, what felt like an eternity of chaos. Mm. And it really did shatter me. It was right. such a like disruption to my understanding of what reality was. And it was so real that the panic and the fear came in because I felt suddenly that this reality, consensus reality, that's so comforting, you know, or, or not, could just be ripped away from me at any moment. And so certain things that reminded me of that liminal experience of going into the DMT would trigger panic attacks. Yeah. And it all centered, interestingly, around the root chakra, which yeah. is ruled by Saturn. I talk about this in the book, it's ruled by Saturn, and it relates to the earth element. And Saturn is the quintessential planet of the Negredo, the dark night of the soul or of melancholy. Hmm. So that was my experience. I was uh, actively calling in the dark night of the soul, <laughs> even though I didn't really know what I was getting myself into.
0: Right. Yeah. So a uh, couple of things in along those lines is one, I was actually thinking about this process in terms of ayahuasca ceremony, mm-hmm. which is DMT. And mm-hmm. that quite often people have that kind of dark night of the soul when they, when they have that experience. And the goal of all of that is for the integration of what you can learn throughout the experience. And so, yeah, so I was, I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought the DMT experience up because I could see that in the ayahuasca yeah. experiences.
1: Yeah. And I think these sort of visionary experiences or initiations or like people that go and engage with the Sundance, these intense initiations i'll say are ways that we can sort of facilitate that nigredo experience when we're ready for it hopefully
0: yeah 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 and that's something i'm thinking about a lot is initiation and kind of a global initiation because yeah. i have the sense that we are in the dark night of the soul now kind of i here's the other thing i was going to mention As I was going through your book, I would make notes in the side of tarot cards and see if I could find like comparisons. And you talk about some of the tarot cards, but I think that the best tarot card for Negredo is the tower. Oh yeah. And and I think that's that shock from the outside, you know, and I think that's where we are now. I think that we haven't even gotten into the full dark night of the soul. You know, the tower's there, (laughs) things are starting to fall apart. And it's that falling apart is a dismemberment. Definitely. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's something that's been coming up in other conversations I've been having is um, Mm -hmm. that we are currently experiencing the first stage of the alchemical Opus, the Negredo. And that part of that is the dissolution and the sort of breakdown of these societal structures that we've become so accustomed to rooted in the patriarchy, you know, that are kind of breaking down and that's totally necessary for something new to be birthed, but it's a painful process and it's scary. And a lot of us are scared, you know, and especially with the what's happening with the ecosystems and the environment and global warming and all of the the increase of storms and the increased temperatures and all of that. It's quite terrifying, you know, just as the negredo is described to be as an internal experience. Or yeah. an individual level, but now we're going through that collectively. Yeah. And with the fires and stuff, it's really interesting to think about calcination as an alchemical process, which relates to the Tower card, as mm-hmm. you said, because it's a Mars process related to right. the sign of Aries in the zodiac. So the Tower goes along with that. Right. And yeah, just this sort of cataclysmic fire that is burning everything down to ashes.
0: Yeah yeah, and it seems to me that the holding on to these structures that are the root cause <laughs> for, you know, this these ecological crises that we're facing and also social justice crises, right you know, we seem to be holding on to them just like people hold on to their conditioning. Um, oh, yeah, so I think that there's an amazing connection between the alchemical work, the work of the individual and what's going on in the larger, larger world here. Yeah. And so the other thing that, that keeps coming up in conversations that I have is I've had several guests say, well, we have to remember who we are. And that's what got me thinking about this whole process, because I was thinking about that sort of shamanic initiation where the shamans have that experience sometimes of you know, figuratively, <laughs> symbolically being dismembered. And yeah. and that's how I keep thinking about this is in the sense that we are being dismembered and then we have to remember ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually that goes back to the very ancient roots of alchemy mm-hmm. in Egypt and the whole mythology around Osiris, you know, right. the, the dying and resurrected God who's dismembered by his evil brother Seth. And Mm -hmm. then his loving spouse and sister, Isis, has to go about and collect all those dismembered pieces and put them back together and remember Osiris, you know, remember the body of Osiris. And through that, you know, the phallus is still missing. She Mm -hmm. recreates the phallus through magical means and then conceives a child. So uh, through that whole death and resurrection process, something new and redeeming is born. And yeah, Yeah. that's the shamanic experience. Exactly.
0: Yeah. 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 So we are in the, the alchemical process, whether you like it or not. (laughs) So, so, and it helps to have a guide. It helps to have a guide to what's going on, what's happening. And, you know, I, I liked kind of going back because there are some other things I want to talk about, but kind of going back just for a moment about art being transformative. And I have a quote here because I kind of see the larger culture being described here, because you wrote, if we are not being transformed, if our art is not itself transforming as much as it is transformative, then we run the risk of art becoming vapid and hollow expression of some perverted obsession or distorted by our desire for fame and fortune, repeating formulas that promise external success at the expense of true inner liberation and authenticity. And when I read that, I could not help but to think of popular culture and art and popular culture, especially like movies and how formulaic they are. And it's all about the money. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's sad to see that, you know, and um, a lot of people are content with that, with that formulaic approach and way of storytelling, especially in media. But also I think about social media in general and just Mm. the shortening of attention spans and, yeah, Um, you know we have no patience to really take anything in anymore we just we see an image like scroll past you know like it's really um sad the way that's affecting us and limiting our ability to observe and be with art you know and also with COVID and kind of the isolation and everybody staying home kind of you know turning away from Interactions with other people, interactions with art and having yeah. art shows and stuff like that to go to and mm. interact with. That's all been, I think, pretty detrimental, but we can all in our own ways kind of work against that, you know? Yeah. By yeah. Taking more time yeah. with things, yeah. taking yeah. more time in our observations, being more thoughtful in how we take in media, more discerning in what we take in. And then in our creative process, yeah not falling into the trap of materialism and the fear that is driven into us that if we're not like constantly producing art and you know sticking to a brand and all of that uh, that we're going to fail you know because i think when we really access our authentic creativity and we let that be the driving force of our of our art and our business as an artist or as a creator of any kind really That's where the magic happens. And that's where the universe really comes to meet us and uh, help us realize our dreams.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the person that came to mind when you were discussing that in the book was David Lynch, That, that, you know, I know that his process is he meditates. He's all about transcendental meditation and he lets the imagery come to him and he won't do anything unless it is an authentic arising from his unconscious from his creativity. The one time he went off of that was when he made Dune, which everyone's (laughs) like, yeah, that's the worst thing he's done. But ever since then, he's like, no, I'm always going to be authentic and true to myself. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And there's no one else quite like him in the, in the world of film and art. So, and I definitely see the value of that. Let's talk about art a little bit more because you do begin the book by discussing some I guess movements within art. You begin with romanticism and then I think it's the symbolists, symbolism, dada and then you end with surrealism speaking of David Lynch. And it occurred to me when I was reading them that in a way those movements seem to the history of it seem to also mirror this creative alchemical process is that true am i seeing things or am i on the right path there
1: yeah totally totally i kind of because i went through four movements which mm-hmm. was a choice you know i, I right. could have expanded beyond that i could have looked at medieval art or renaissance art but i i really wanted to look at these specific periods because i think they do mirror that alchemical opus in the way beginning with romanticism which was kind of a reactionary movement to the Enlightenment era values that relegated these subjective realms to insignificance, you know? And so it was a reassertion of the primacy of the individual and the subjective world of feelings and imagination and dreams, um, and also with the connection with nature and with the feminine. Mm. So in a sense, that Enlightenment shift could be seen as a sort of nigredo or a dying of the imagination. Because, you know, we wanted to leave behind these sort of naive, superstitious ways of relating to reality to reach something less dogmatic, you know, and.
0: Yeah, well, is it the the sleep of reason breeds monsters or something like that?
1: Exactly. yeah. Yeah. So romanticism, I guess, sort of relates to that first stage of the process of like breaking that down and getting in touch with something more authentic and true to, like, what's actually happening inside the individual. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you know, symbolism developed later in the 19th century and shares a lot of similarities with Romanticism. An interest in uh, Eastern, more exotic ideas, Gothic architecture, alchemy magic, things of the past, you know, this sort of romantic idea of things of the past and bringing that into the art that they were creating. But the symbolists really went pretty deep into that dark world of the unconscious, I think, um, which is reflective of that second stage of the alchemical opus, which is very watery, very lunar, getting in touch with the feminine, what's hidden, what's underneath the surface, kind of losing yourself in this sort of escape into imaginal world and for the symbolists that was enough you know they just wanted to escape into that imaginal world create art from it but you know they really went into that especially with the the end of the 19th century and the decadence and a lot of intoxication and yeah but then you know with the 20th century came data and surrealism and so there was uh, another sort of shift where um, people wanted art to say something, you know, to like make a statement and that it wasn't enough to just escape into this sort of intoxicated reality. And with Dada, it was a complete negation of art, kind of a breakdown of everything that we think about art to reformulate it. And so like a kind of destructive principle. And Mm. you get to the third stage of the opus, there's a few different things that happen. It's a transition to the final stage, but there can also be another sort of mini-Necredo within that mm-hmm. third stage, another mm-hmm. sort of depth. And I, I see Dada like that. You know, there was a necessary breakdown of concepts and ideas around art that needed to happen. And so they were very focused on creating things by chance and spontaneity and not needing to make sense. You know, their um, poetry without words, like just these sort of vocalizations, these sound incantations that they related to alchemy and magic. And Surrealism was birthed within the Dada movement. It was very connected to it, but it became its own thing because the Surrealists then sort of aligned with the final stage of the opus, which is the integration, like the complete integration of the opposites. And they were really interested in alchemy, really interested in psychology, as well as, you know, Freud's ideas were taking hold and the union of the subjective and objective, the union of the conscious and the unconscious. And using techniques to, like automatism, automatic writing, automatic drawing, to access the unconscious and allow it to flow freely. And so, hence we get that very, you know, iconic surrealist art, which is so interesting. And not like you would think of classical art, you know. So, in that sense, the surrealists were very much in alignment with that final stage of union. And they even used a lot of alchemical metaphors. And a lot of them were writing about alchemy, like Andre Breton writes about alchemy quite a bit, Max Ernst as well. And yeah, but for them, it was that union, that place of union was something that was inherent in reality. And it was just a matter of getting back to it. Not something new that was being created, but more of like stripping away every all the falsity to get back to that place of unity.
0: Yeah yeah you know surrealism has always been sort of my favorite art form <laughs> and i don't know exactly why and maybe it is because it is that dream in reality merger yeah and uh, and i think that's one of the reasons that i love your artwork so much because uh, i would say that your art is surrealist um and very alchemical um in there and i just i just love surrealism um so I wanted to ask you about, you've mentioned this a couple of times and it's come up a little bit here as well, nature and the feminine. And I was curious if you could speak a little bit about the role of the feminine in this alchemical process.
1: Well, the feminine, we can relate to sort of the receptive side of our being. So we all have a masculine and feminine side of our being, you know, and how we identify doesn't really matter so much. We all have these two parts um, in various proportions. And the feminine just tends to relate more to the receptive, passive, less active side of our being, also to the unconscious or what's hidden, the lunar side. In alchemy, it's Luna and soul. So the solar side relating to the sun and to the active aspect of our consciousness, the rational part of our being. And these two work in harmony together. Ideally, usually the case is that they're sort of constantly battling each other. Right. And so in alchemical art, you see a lot of like animals representing these two polarities battling each other. Or you see the king and the queen as representations of soul and Luna and they're sort of various iterations of separation and conjunction as mirroring a process that goes on within the, the individual as they're coming to reconcile these two parts of their being and yeah so the feminine i would relate to that more inner world
2: yeah the world so, of
1: feelings and imagination and subjective and yeah. which has been so suppressed by the patriarchy
0: yeah and that's what we have to retrieve right and yeah. it's necessary for our imagination and to yeah. be creative beings and remember ourselves we have to retrieve the feminine and that's why i think it's so important and and i love that it's not one overcoming the other or overpowering the other but it's supposed to be a union it's supposed to be a kind of balance
1: yeah yeah i think at various parts of the process soul might overpower luna or luna might overpower soul but ultimately the ideal is that union of these two parts
0: yeah so i was also interested that you I know in the first book you talked about the planets quite a bit and they appear a little bit in this book but I think what's uh, present a little bit more are the chakras (laughs) and what exactly is the connection between the chakras and alchemy
1: well in the first book I talk about hermeticism and a big Part of the Hermetic Path is this sort of neoplatonic idea of the seven spheres of the planets, these seven nested spheres that we all are sort of born into. And as we incarnate into physical reality, we pass through these spheres and we take on different energies of these spheres that if we look at it psychologically, these energies are forces that determine our fate. So there's sort of unconscious forces working on this Mm -hmm. and they have, they fall into seven archetypal patterns that the seven planets represent or the seven spheres. And in the um, Indian tradition, the seven chakras are within the subtle body. And so it's interesting. I want to do some research around this, but around the caduceus specifically and the connections between different cultures, because Mm -hmm. in the Indian tradition, The caduceus, the staff of Hermes is mapped onto the subtle body, and where the two serpents of the staff of Hermes intertwine, that's where the chakras are located, these seven points along the spinal column and leading up to the crown chakra at the top of the head. But these can also be related to those seven planets and these seven very archetypal patterns of energy that play out in our lives in different ways. So, like I said before, Saturn relates to the root chakra, the sun relates to the crown chakra, and there's variations on that system. Mm -hmm. You know, some Mm -hmm. people ascribe different planetary attributions to each chakra, and that's okay. I think different systems are totally valid. I like the one that I work with, and that's what Mm -hmm. I present in books, but it's just a way of understanding how the above affects the below. So, Mm -hmm. how the celestial influences affect us internally. In our subtle body, and in turn, how that subtle body affects our physical body, how it affects our consciousness and our unconscious. And um, the more conscious that we can become of that, the more we can um, gain agency over our own fate. And hmm. I talk about that more in the first book the, these right. ideas of fate and yeah. the planets as these sort of rulers of fate. But when it comes to working with the chakra system, it's just a way of sort of bridging the inner and the outer world Mm. and understanding how these energies affect us and how they play out. Because often if we're dealing with some sort of physical issue, you know, we can relate that to something on the subtle level to a chakra that rules that part of the body. And then we can look at the planet and Mm. we can look at that aspect of our life, you know, Like for me, when I was having my panic attacks, you know, it all centered around the root chakra. All the energy would flood there. And it was just this really intense feeling. And that led me to kind of look into Saturn as the ruler of the root chakra and the earth element and think about like, how can I create more structure in my life, more routine that's going to help me stay grounded and in my body? How can I heal this? And, you know, I observed other physical symptoms that went along with that and If we look at all these different parts, it's a way that we can get a holistic view of something that's going on. It's not just a physical symptom. It's also reflected in um, patterns in our life, perhaps in our relationships too. Yeah.
0: Yes. So, yeah, I was curious because I know that the chakra system is very focused on energy Mm -hmm. and the alchemical system seems to be more about what's going on in consciousness in a sense. But I like the idea of the two of them working together, that there is kind of a healing of the energetic body and in conjunction with working with finding that balance within our own consciousness. Yeah. Well,
1: it all goes together, right? Because yeah, Those two serpents, Ida and Pingala in the Indian tradition, um, represent the feminine and the masculine or the passive and receptive side of our being. And Mm. as that kundalini energy rises and comes to union uh, in the third eye and at the crown, um, the energy is harmonized within our being. All the chakras are sort of aligned in this vertical alignment. The Mm. two sides of our being come to balance and there's that enlightening effect of that that kiss of the serpents in the third eye and it's mirrored in the psychological process as well so it's i don't really see that much of a distinction between the psychological the energetic the physical it all comes together you know
0: yeah yeah well it has to be holistic i think in order for it to have the power that it needs to have to heal us yeah Yeah. yeah so yeah, so thank you for that because I I <laughs> I'll be honest. You, you have a lot of correspondence charts in the books, mm-hmm. which I think are an incredible resource that people can use for ritual and whatnot in the chakra. and I'm still kind of learning about the chakras. I had I had some physical issues about a year ago and it was clearly energetic as well. And I had gone to like an acupuncturist, and he didn't speak very much English, but he was like, Your energy, all I'm like, Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And a good friend of mine's a massage therapist, and she had, and she was holding it over the chakras, and she's like, Your chakra, they're all blocked, everything's blocked. And so I've done a lot of work to kind of clear things up, but as I was going through your book and you had the chakra charts and kind of like, you know, if everything's working right, this is it. But you know, if it's blocked, I'm like, oh yeah, that's all me (laughs) right there. That's what I was experiencing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Were you able to uh, kind of look at the physical symptoms that you were having and relate it to things that were going on in your life? Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. It, It was actually pretty clear. And I've gone I've done that a lot. And I've also talked about this. What really made the connection for me, uh, it was about eight years ago. Um, when I was writing, that I was going to finish my dissertation. Uh, my parents, uh, both passed away that year and my dad had, he'd been sick for a while and he kept having like congestive heart failure. And what they wanted to do was a surgery, um, Uh, They wanted to remove his pericardium, the sac that his heart sits in, because they said it had calcified and that wasn't allowing the heart to beat properly. And they said, well, if we get rid of that sac, it'll beat properly. You'll be fine. Now, my dad was career army and he served, I think, two tours in Vietnam, never spoke about it. So I am convinced that my father had a lot of trauma from that. And I think it manifested in his heart. And I mention all of this because my brother at the exact same time got sick. And he ended up several months later having the same surgery that my dad had. He had the pericardectomy. And I remember because he spent a month in the hospital and they were trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And my brother without getting into all the personal history my brother was around my parents far more than i was and they lived in the same city they were just you know down the road from each other so they were much more present and i remember talking to my sister-in-law when he was going through all these tests and i'm like i think it's not you know i didn't like the word psychosomatic but it was like there's you know because it's not all in his head but there's a connection going on And I started thinking about that. That's when I really started thinking about the connection between the energy and our emotions and how it manifests in our body. Um, And when I did my first ayahuasca ceremony, I did it because I wanted to work on the energy and it was all focused on my heart. Everything was focused on the heart. And so I didn't have the same experience, fortunately, as my brother did, but I recognized that there was this connection between the three men and the family and the inability to express something in the heart. So, yeah. So that's my answer to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's so interesting. And poetic too, the way the body expresses things, right. The hardening of the heart.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the image I had was a, um, a cactus. Mm. It was a cactus covered with uh, the spines. And I realized that that was my heart, that all the um, uh, disappointments and the losses and the heartaches, I had protected it. And that what I need to do is start pulling out all of those spines so that my heart can be open and free and the energy can flow.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: you know, in the process, I think when we do that kind of work, we can honor that part of us that felt the need. For that protection you know yeah yeah Yeah. and hold that voice too you know yeah but But it's
0: difficult isn't it i mean to start thinking like this and to start catching these things because that's so much a part of the work right
1: Yeah. yeah i mean it can take a long time to kind of break down our conditioned way of seeing reality and the yeah. separation that we tend to view things with like oh that's my body that's right. my emotional experience that's my you know external life that's my career we tend to kind of compartmentalize everything right. rather than looking at the whole but that's not really how things work there's always a sort of synergy between the inner and the outer and hmm. whether we're conscious of it or not yeah. But the more consciousness we bring to it, the more we can make those connections and facilitate healing. And yeah, I think there's something too in the story that you just told about um, generational trauma. It's really up to us always in our own life to heal that instead yeah. of carrying it forward or letting yeah. it through our own unflower- or flowering and progression in and a yeah. spiritual sense, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to do that. And that's the other thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is ancestral traumas in the sense of, you know, we get them from just being raised in a family, but there's also a genetic component sometimes to these things. You know, we all have healing to do. (laughs) We all have massive, massive healing to do. And so you go through this alchemical process and then you're done. You're enlightened. Yep. Is is that the way it works? (laughs) Yep.
1: It's all good now. (laughs) No, really, I see it as a cyclical Mm. process. And it's even talked about in the alchemical. The final stage, you've got the philosopher's stone. It's impervious to fire. You've perfected it. It still goes through another level of refinement. And that entails Mm. going through the whole process again but in a more consolidated, faster way. So the way I see it, it's like the Negredo still comes up for me. It came up for me when I finished the books, both of them, you know, because I finished, I finished them at different times. And each time it was like a loss because this project that I had been putting all of my heart and soul into that had sort of defined my life every single day working on the books in some regard was suddenly no longer necessary. It was done out of my hands. I couldn't do anything anymore. So yeah, there was a sense of loss in the same way that someone would feel that when their child leaves home for the first time to go off to college or something you know, a void. And yeah. that void is kind of similar to the void at the beginning of creation, right? The chaos at the beginning of creation that darkness. So I had to go through that, but because I've gone through it so many times and also gone through it in such a dramatic way when I was younger, I recognize it for what it is. I can sort of embrace it and say, all right, I'm just going to surrender to this. I'm not going to try to like push through this. I know there's something here for me. I'm going to rest and just wait until, until the inspiration comes through. But it can take a while, you know, but for me now I've been through it so many times, it tends to go faster Hmm. and it's not so intense. I don't become identified with it. I don't get stuck in the way of thinking that it's always going to be like that, you know?
0: Yeah, Well, that's good news that <laughs> it might take less time as you go through it, but it's, yeah. it is an ongoing process. We're going to go through this our entire yeah. lives, right?
1: It's life and death. You know, it's a continuous cycle. They're totally connected and life um, generates that as just two parts of um, this reality that we're having to deal with. Things go a lot smoother. Yeah.
0: There's yeah.
1: more grace involved.
0: Yeah. And isn't that the, the symbol of the Ouroboros, isn't that what that symbolizes is that it's constantly.
1: Yeah.
0: Constantly going. Yeah.
1: Eternally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about one of the other alchemical images, uh, because it's one that has always fascinated me and it's the salamander in the fire. Mm. And uh, what is that? What does that represent?
1: Well, the sal- salamander represents the philosopher's stone because um, the stone, once it's perfected, is said to be impervious to the flames. Mm. You can't dissolve it. You can't burn it. It's, yeah, it's very solid and fixed.
2: Mm.
1: And the salamander represents that as being related to fire, as being seen as living in the fire in a magical sense. And I can't remember exactly where that stems from. I think it might be because the salamanders would scurry out from the wood pile when the fire began or something yeah, like yeah,
2: that yeah. there's
1: some association there cuz you know salamanders are actually very watery right um, but as a symbol they represent that ability to withstand the fire and so i think that's the other thing that happens when you go through this process you begin to refine this power within yourself this awareness mm-hmm. which we can relate to the philosopher's stone that becomes more and more solid the more we expose it to this process. Mm -hmm. And so to be impervious to the fire is to be able to withstand the conflagrations of life that we have to go through these transformative initiative experiences Mm -hmm. and to hold on to that spiritual essence at the core of our being, the Mm -hmm. immortal essence, what's Mm -hmm. really true within us and everything else is, can be burned away, you know, but if we can hold on to that essence, that's, what that represents, the salamander in
0: the fire. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I don't have any tattoos, but I have been thinking about getting one. And I was thinking for a long time that I want to get the salamander in the fire.
2: That would be a
0: really good one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be really good. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm always uh, concerned because it's so permanent and I change my mind so often, but I think I can stick with that one. I think I can stick with that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be a good one. So, I know that we're starting to run out of time here a little bit, but I want to go back to something that you wrote at the very beginning of the book about this entire process. And you wrote that the heart of alchemy is the search for divine love and unity. And I get the unity because we talked about that with the balance between the masculine and the feminine, the conscious and the unconscious. But what about this divine love?
1: Well, that divine love between those parts of our being, right? Mm. So the divine love that allows us to embrace the shadow, to hold the shadow with a feeling of love and tenderness, and also the love that is the unifying force within the universe. Mm. So if we think about, I think it was empathy, Empedocles, the philosopher who talked oh, about
2: yeah, yeah.
1: love and strife as being right. the two primal forces of the universe constantly you know, constantly yeah. interacting with each other. And where strife tends to cause separation, love brings the union. And in alchemy, there's a similar philosophy, the axiom of solve it coagula, dissolution and coagulation. So the breaking apart and the bringing together. And that bringing together is the love of alchemy right. and the search yeah. for that, and the bringing together of these disparate parts of the self, the yeah. coagulation of the self into a, a whole yeah. unified being.
0: Yeah, I always found it interesting In the you know, to go back to the tarot for a second the two cards that represent the Solve and Coagulas, the Solve, you know, that's the tearing apart is the lover's card. (laughs) And you would think that that would be the card that is the bringing together, but it's not. It has the image of the sword. I know in some of the decks, it's the cleaving apart and it's the temperance or art card. If you're in the Thoth deck, it's an art card that that's the bringing together.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, there's there's different ways of ascribing the tarot to the alchemical processes and Mm -hmm to yeah. the Zodiac too, but the system that I talk about in the book, the lovers is actually, it relates to Gemini mm-hmm. and the alchemical process associated with that is fixation.
2: Ah, okay. And
1: that has to do with that union of the opposites and okay. the final integration and bringing together of them so that they're in a solid, fixed, final union.
0: Okay. What, so would, be, in- what would be the solve card then in the system that you're...
1: That would be, I believe cancer and yeah. sign of cancer and that relates to the seven the chariot
0: okay right yeah
1: so yeah it's kind of like the hero's quest going out and search yeah. for the grail you know
0: yeah the yeah Hero
1: in their chariot
0: yeah well i know in crowley's thoth deck the charioteer is holding what he says is the grail yeah. yeah it's the whole yeah. of, the, of the ground a chalice
1: yeah. with a crab in it I believe right, All
0: right. Yeah, yeah 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 Yeah. there you go <laughs> yeah well, I, I love how everything is so interconnected once you start digging into this western esoteric tradition and, and I think again I think you did an amazing job of um, explaining it and presenting it in a way that is so very accessible um, so again I applaud you on that so you know we're i guess we're kind of at the end here let me ask you what are you going to do next you finish these books are you going back into the negrito or you, you know, well, yeah what's going on what's going on what's happening in
1: the negrito for a little while <laughs> yeah. a couple months i think of just kind of like all right what's gonna what's gonna happen next you know i need something to focus on and you know i was getting back into the studio but i like to have a writing project mm. along with the painting that i do. Uh, just part of my process to be able to integrate things intellectually and make sense of them in a sort of structured way through writing whereas the painting is much more of a soulful kind of expression so I have been really inspired by the 36 astrological decans Mm. of the zodiac so it's you know each zodiac is um, broken down into 10 degree segments so there's three in each zodiac sign and they've all been ascribed with different planetary rulers So it's kind of like a a different lens of looking at the Zodiac. And these decans have been used in magical systems for centuries. And there's many different descriptions of magical images that are associated with the decans. And there's also different systems of planetary rulership and different written descriptions. So what I'm doing is kind of a year of research on the decans. And for each decan, as it, approaches, I write a post on my Patreon, going into all the research that I've done, describing the different ways of envisioning the Deccan, working with Deccan, relating it to the tarot, and because some of the, like the rider weight deck, a lot of those images are very much based in these decanic, at least for the minor arcana, right. based in these decanic images, so yeah, I'm writing a post, offering a few suggestions for how to work with it as it passes, as the sun passes through it, and then... Yeah, we'll see how the project develops, but I could see it leading to a book. I think I'd like to spend another year making art for each of the Deccans mm-hmm. and we'll see. But that's kind of what I'm doing right now. And people can join me on Patreon for a dollar a month if they want to mm-hmm. read the posts.
0: All right. And what's your uh, the Patreon website? It's so patreon.com
1: patreon. forward slash seven art, all spelled out.
0: Seven art, okay. And you also have a personal website, correct?
1: I do. Yeah. And yeah. that's just marlena7bremner.com. All right. And you can see all of my art in my gallery. There's links to the books and where different places you can purchase the books. And also lots of prints for sale. Most of my paintings are available as a print. So. Yeah.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I, uh, I look forward to whatever you do with the uh, Deccans. Um, I'm a little bit familiar with them um but i would love to know what your take is on them um i think that would be fascinating um so um yeah
1: it's a fascinating subject i'm having a lot of fun
0: yeah yeah i uh, it's in the the picatrix right isn't that one of the sources that's
1: one of the sources yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah there's yeah. a couple of hermetic sources some arabic sources there's a whole indian system of decanic yeah. descriptions right right yeah
0: yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. And I know that there's a Deccan walk that you can take with the Tarot where you kind of focus on yeah. the card for the Deccan, um, yeah. which I should probably do at some point. That would be interesting. All right. Well, Seven, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time and thoroughly enjoyed the conversation again. And thank one sure. final time, appreciate your work and highly recommend it to everybody.
1: Thank you so much, Nick. It was really lovely to talk to you again. And I just appreciate being back on the show and your kind words about my work and the books. And yeah, thanks for the opportunity.
0: And that's a wrap on episode 103 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience. For anyone who would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio, and please support my work, uh, please consider joining my Patreon. Some of the perks for patrons include early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, and a monthly book club where we explore books discussed on the podcast, spiritual and philosophical classics, and books related to the cocktail apocalypse. I mean, remember, I am a professor of religious studies and philosophy. So, Consider the book club an ongoing classroom where you can go as deep as you want with me and other rebel spirits. Patreon has also started a free uh, membership tier, so I'll be posting quite a bit of material on the Patreon site that is available to everyone. So please take a moment to sign up. Uh, You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you would prefer to make a one-time donation, uh, you can still do so via PayPal. I still have a lot of big plans for the podcast and the YouTube channel. Right now, this is all a labor of love. So your support will not only help me in continuing what I've been doing here, but will also help me grow the channel and the podcast. I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, coworkers, social media. You know the drill. That really is one of the best ways that you can help and support the podcast. Help me grow my audience. As I always like to say, I'm here in the front range now doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology psychedelics and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know, I sure do hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. It only takes a second, and your 5-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review, and please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to, or watching, rebel spirit radio until next time may you be in peace may you flourish in all possible ways and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit